0: Church, I invite you to join me by turning in your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 62. Looking at a little bit lengthier portion of Scripture today, but one in which we find a series of episodes that are very much all linked together. The rest of chapter 9 shows the disciples uh, in the wake of Jesus' statement, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, where he says that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It is in the wake of that pronouncement And this is news to the disciples of Jesus' impending uh, sufferings and death that we find them repeatedly found faithless, uh, repeatedly failing in their understanding of who Jesus is uh, on more than one occasion, putting themselves forward as followers and mouthpieces of Christ with just little to no understanding of what at all uh, they are speaking of. They are, as Christ later describes them, on the other side of the cross, foolish and slow of heart. Well, church... Being that as it may, we have here a portion of God's word in which we can see ourselves. There's a lot that we can identify with in a passage like us. Let us not think that they're so far removed from our own experience that we can't see ourselves And what we read of them, they were ordinary men. There were times where, by God's grace, they learned and they grew, and their thinking would be uh, challenged. Their understanding of what it meant to be a follower and a disciple of Christ would be stretched. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And there would be a season of growth But then it would be like taking two steps forward and one step back. We've all had that experience in the Christian life. The old man rises up, and instead of the the self-denial that we see Christ calling us to, there is self-seeking. Instead of leaving it all behind uh, in the pursuit of Christ, there's preoccupation not with the things of God, but with my own ambitions. With my own desires and concerns, and you may, be, may find it helpful to look for that theme as I read through this passage, turn your hearts with me. Give your attention to the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, "'Teacher!' I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And the days drew near for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell. To those who to those at my home, Jesus said to him, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." our passage opens with the Lord moving from that moment of glory at the transfiguration immediately down into ministry in the valley. He goes from the majesty of that scene at the mountain straightway down into the brokenness and despair at the plain where the people are. And immediately he encounters this man with a tremendous need. Actually, it's his son who who has the need. It's a very desperate kind of situation. You you can see it in the text. The boy is in a, a desperate condition. He is possessed by a demon. And it seizes him. It convulses him. We have said before that, that Luke, being a doctor, uh, tends to draw our attention to details in these sorts of cases that you might not find in other uh, accounts written by the other gospel writers. Well, in doing so, he really has a way of drawing out our compassion and our, our sympathy uh, in the episode, and you can see that here. The boy foams at the mouth. The, sh- the spirit shatters him. It will hardly leave. There is a desperate... Uh, situation there are desperate consequences at stake not just in terms of the boy's life uh, the other uh, gospel writers tell us that the the spirit often seizes him so that he is thrown into the fire and into the water so his life is very much at stake here uh, but it's also the text tells us that the boy is the, the man's only son He's his only child, in fact. And so if the father loses the child, uh, there is no one there to take care of the father in his latter years. There's no one there to carry on the family name. It's a desperate case, and the disciples have been unable to cast the demon out. They have tried. They've given it everything they've got. Now, the remarkable thing about this situation is that in in spite of how desperate it, it is, none of this has prevented the man from going to Christ. None of it has prevented him from running to the Lord Jesus. He hasn't given up. He hasn't thrown in the towel. What does he do? He comes with his desperate situation to Christ. He comes running to Christ with this terrible lot, crying out to Jesus. The difficulty of his circumstances hasn't driven him away from Jesus, as often happens in our lives where we hold up the, the desperation of what we're facing and we're, we, we shrug our shoulders and we think, well, well what could possibly save us? And we, we don't go to Christ That's not what happens here. This man flees to the Lord. He runs to the Lord Jesus with the desperation of his circumstances. And he does so begging, pleading to the Lord, however hopeless his situation may seem to be. Now, church, before dealing with the father, and the boy, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he addresses them first. And there's a great contrast here between what we see in the father of the boy and the disciples, the apostles. The question that is running in the background as it pertains to the disciples, the question at hand is this. Hadn't they been given power and authority over all demons? They had. You can see that at the very beginning of this chapter, at the very beginning of chapter 9, Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons. Not just your run of the mill demon, not just your average demon, but over all demons. You see the question here. The difficulty, uh, the question is not a matter of divine empowerment. It's not a matter of Christ's power being with them. It's not a a matter of divine ability. It is rather a, a matter of appropriation. In other words, their failure was in appropriating that Uh, power and authority that Jesus Christ himself had given to them as they went forth in the name of Christ, which is why Jesus levies this rebuke. If you look at verse 41, what does he say? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you, to be with you and bear with you? Who is that? Uh, rebuke aimed at it's not aimed at the father the father has come in faith it's aimed at the disciples it's not really even aimed so much at the crowd even though there there may be a broader application there but primarily speaking this is aimed at the disciples The apostles are those faithless ones Jesus is having to put up with, and they would have recognized those words. Faithless or twisted, perverse generation. That comes right from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, where Israel is at the tail end of 40 years in the wilderness. Forty years of grumbling. 40 years of complaint, 40 years of doubting God's goodness, uh, questioning uh, God's ways. That's what the disciples are being likened to. They are a people who have been given the promise of God. They have the provision of Christ. They hold in their hands the very word of God. And yet, what does Jesus reveal about them? Their hearts are still full of unbelief. They're still ready to go astray. Their faith is still floundering. Are you beginning to see just some some application in your own life to the circumstances and trials and afflictions that you face today? Consider those. The problem that we face as believers isn't one of a lack of revelation. It's not one where uh, the spirit of Jesus Christ isn't with us. Uh, Jesus has given us his very word. He has promised us, and promised us, and lo, I am with you even until the very end of the age. The problem we face is our faith; is that we don't look to the Lord in believing trust when we are faced with our trials. So, what do you do when you're up against some desperate situation and the the troubles of your circumstances seem to outpace? Your capacity to put your trust in the Lord they seem to outpace your capacity to find your rest in God. Well, you do just as this father did, you flee to christ you you run to him. The Gospel of Mark uh, records five of my Favorite words in the entire Bible, five ever applicable words, a prayer that you can pray in any situation you will ever face in life, and they come out of the mouth of this Father. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, you'll never find yourself in a situation where that prayer isn't a good prayer to pray. Where you bring that admixture of faith and unbelief to the Lord. And you say, I believe, help my unbelief. You say, Lord, on one hand, I know you're able and more than able to bring your power to bear. In my life, I know you're able to deliver me from my affliction or for, from the, uh, the besetting power of this sin or to work salvation in my spouse or my child or my, my family member or my, my friend. But on the other hand, I find myself doubting. I, I find myself questioning whether you really will. And so you take that all to the Lord you take the measure of faith that you have and your unbelief. And with the one, you cast yourself on the Lord and then you take the other and you confess it to God. You say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, trusting that he will strengthen your faith. He will strengthen you. He will help your unbelief. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, he restored the boy, and he gave him back to his father. He heard the prayer of that man, and he answered him. Now, I want you to watch the transition between verses 43 and verse 44. It says that all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling And just pause there for a second. While they were marveling at what? While they're marveling at the majesty of God, they're marveling at everything that Jesus is doing, Christ breaks in and he says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke deliberately juxtaposes these two scenes together. They sit side by side for a reason. It is while uh, the people are marveling marveling at the glory and wonder and greatness of God that the Lord Jesus Christ draws their attention to what seems like defeat. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of, of men, and he wants them to take this to heart. Let these words sink into your ears. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what does it say? But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Now, this deserves some explanation here. The point of this text is not that Christ's words were just totally unintelligible to the apostles, that they were just so dense that they couldn't possibly understand what he was was saying. Uh, we know that in part because if you look over at Matthew's account, it says there that when they heard this, they were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed at, at what Jesus said to them. So they understood on one level what he said to them. That much was clear. He was going to be delivered into the hands of men. But to go back to what we saw a couple of weeks ago, they couldn't make sense of how this all fit in to the idea of Christ's Messiahship. How could it be that the promised Messiah uh, would find himself in a situation where, you could put it this way, where, where the deliverer was going to be delivered? the deliverer was going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men that was the crux of the issue it didn't add up in their minds their capacity to put these two ideas together of having a suffering savior just wasn't there of course this is the the mystery and the glory and the wonder of the of the gospel that Christ was manifested in the flesh in order to suffer and die, only after to be vindicated, to be taken up in glory, to be proclaimed throughout the world. That's the the glory of the gospel and its mystery. And part of their lack of perception was indeed because of a divine prerogative. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. It wasn't time for them to put all of the pieces together. That wouldn't come until after the resurrection. For now, suffering is the keynote. Suffering, affliction, crucifixion is the theme. Lowliness and rejection is what they need to let sink into their ears. Now, I said... Each of these vignettes are are linked together. It's on the heels of this assertion that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men uh, that you find something striking in the, the disciples. What do you see them doing? We find them arguing about which of them was the greatest. You see the irony there. While Jesus is insisting that he must go and he must give up his life, we find the disciples consumed with pride and a sense of self-importance. It's the inverse of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. They're doing everything out of selfish ambition and conceit in pride, counting themselves as significant, as more significant than others. They're looking not to the interests of others, but to their own interests. But look at what verse 47 says, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Think, church, about the significance of those words, but Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Jesus hears not just the words that we say, he knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, he knows the reasoning that lies behind the words of our mouths. Jesus perceives the abundance of the heart before it ever gives rise to the words that come out of our mouths. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he takes a little child. There's some little children here today. Imagine being called upon by Jesus of Nazareth, and he takes a little child next to him, him, and he uses this little child as an object lesson for the disciples and for the crowd, something everyone there could understand. He takes the child and he says this, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Now, what is the teaching of the text? What what does a child represent? Child represents weakness. Child represents lowliness. Child represents vulnerability, meekness, someone of low status. That was... Uh, even much more so the case in the first century, much more so than it is so the case in our day, in our society. We tend to have much more child-centered homes in society. In the first century, a child was very much emblematic of someone of low status, someone meek and And so you see what Jesus is saying here, to receive such a one, uh, to welcome someone like this little child, to extend uh, gospel hospitality to someone like this, that is what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Not vying for first position, not seeing how you can claw your way to the top try to find uh, the way that you can scramble on top of everyone else and make a name for yourself. In their minds, in the disciples' minds, greatness meant being honored publicly by all, making sure that everybody knew your name. Everybody knew that you were on the top. You had a, 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 a place of prestige and, and pride. Jesus is working to undermine all. All of that in the apostles' hearts and minds. And through his word, the Spirit works to do the same in our hearts and mind. Jesus says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Greatness, in other words, isn't something innate. It is not something you were born with. It isn't something that you get by clawing your way to the top. Where is true greatness found? Jesus answers by saying that true greatness is found in relationship to Jesus. Now, what does that have to do with this little child? The child isn't great. He's lowly. And so to receive this little child, to receive one like him, is to receive Jesus. The one who makes himself a servant of all is greatest, the Bible says, in the kingdom of God. When we get to the new creation, to the new heavens and earth, I trust that there will be many of us who are shocked at the Lord's appraisal of men, at the rewards that are given in heaven. There will be many Uh, great ones whose sacrifices and giving and service and hospitality went entirely unnoticed in this life, at least by men. There will be many whose, whose service to the Lord because of their lowliness of heart, because of their humility, because of the way that they have ordered their lives so that their name receives no recognition whatsoever, but only the name of Jesus Christ, they will receive a great reward. And then, conversely, there will be many who have spent their lives uh, building little kingdoms of their own, even under the banner of the gospel. Even under the banner of Christ's name, men who pour all of their time and energy into uh, making a name for themselves and into trying to make sure that they get noticed and recon- re- recognize worrying about what other people think about them, calculating how they can elbow their way to the front. In other words, they're building with wood, hay, and stubble all along, and the day will disclose it. The day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, uh, the second letter to the Corinthians says. And and there may be some who are saved, but only as if through fire. In other words, they will be be saved on account of their faith, but they're men who never came to the point where they were able to say with the apostle Paul, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul servants, servants through whom you believe. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God is the one we seek to magnify. God's name is the one we aim to build up. It's his kingdom we want to see uh, spread forth throughout this land. So you can see this isn't a random episode. This isn't some kind of discrete, unrelated event. Jesus speaks of suffering, of humiliation, his lowliness, and then he says, so must it be for you. This is the way to true greatness. The way up is down in service and humility. Now, the same is true in the next scene. John says, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Again, you see the theme there. John is convinced that he is the the watchdog on all that is good and holy in the world that he gets to be the arbiter on who speaks for God. He's the gatekeeper of ministry that is approved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes in and says, this is not the case. Now, this is a very interesting uh, scene in the scriptures because we know next to nothing about this man who went out in the name of Christ. We don't know what his theology was. We don't know how much training he had. We don't know what gave him the idea to go out in the name of Jesus Christ and preach the gospel. But we can safely assume this much, that he came to put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, and he determined to live for his glory, and that was enough. Jesus said, don't stop him. What an apropos passage this is for us in the church today. Friends, we may have many uh, doctrinal convictions. We may have many different understandings from other brothers and sisters in the church. We may have certain convictions on how the church is to function, how how the work of the ministry is to go about throughout the world. But we should never think that we have the market covered so to speak, on what God is doing in the world. We should never have that kind of mentality. There is a time and a place for opening up our Bibles in friendly debate uh, with those with whom we disagree, but to denounce someone who preaches Christ crucified, to try to stop someone who waves the banner of the gospel because they're just not in our tribe That's a great error. It's a great error. We're not talking here about a kind of wishy-washy, ecumenical approach to ministry, something that has no concern for the truth. We're talking about a party spirit, a provincialism, a territorial uh, kind of attitude. Beloved, where the true gospel is preached that's cause for rejoicing. We ought to glory in that, even as we work toward fidelity and all the rest. Let's well, glory where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. And then you have verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. While the disciples are fussing over who's number one, the Lord Jesus Christ sets his face in unflinching determination for Jerusalem. He's resolved. Why is he resolved? Why must he be uh, resolved? He knew what lay before him, he knew the sufferings and death. That were to come. He knew the agony of the cross that he was destined for. He knew he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our trans, uh, iniquities. He knew that he would be chastised and oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and so he sets his face. Jesus is quoting here from the book of Isaiah. In the 50th chapter, this is the, th- the third of what we call those servant songs in uh, the book of Isaiah. And I want to read a little bit from this section. In the 50th chapter of the book of Isaiah, uh, starting in verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So why does Jesus set his face like a, like a flint to go to Jerusalem? We can answer that in a couple of different ways. First, we can say that the suffering that was to come required that kind of tenacity that he set his face toward Jerusalem. But there's something even more significant running in the background that we see here in the 50th chapter of Isaiah, which is that Jesus knew the Lord would vindicate him. Jesus knew he wouldn't be put to shame In fact, you can see that this expression, therefore, I have set my face like a flint follows right on the heels of, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. After suffering, there would come glory. After the cross, there would come the crown. And so it will be for us. So it will be for those who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him? Are you following him? Do you love him? Can you see something of his earthly plight in your own life? As you take up your cross, not everyone received him. You see here that uh, Jesus passes through Samaria, and we don't know a lot about the, Sam- the Samaritans as-, as a whole. We do know that they rejected the idea of Jerusalem being the, the center of, uh, the-, the geographical center of redemptive history. That helps provide the background of the lack of hospitality here. It says that they uh, rejected him because he had set his face for Jerusalem. So Jesus goes on. Well, James and John have an answer. When they are uh, rejected, they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And we've drawn a fair amount of attention to Peter uh, in the course of our our study in in the book of of Luke and seeing how he can be impetuous and and headstrong. And we see here that it wasn't just Peter. And I I think that some measure of uh, hesitation is warranted in being too quick to condemn James and John here. We don't know what their motivation was. In saying, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven they They may th- th- have been concerned with a righteous zeal for the Lord and him being rejected uh, we don 't know, but they were hasty in calling for judgment in that moment. We can see that here, and that the Lord actually rebukes them. Uh, some of your bibles may uh, have a note there that says that there are certain manuscripts that include the words as Elijah did. Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven as Elijah did? Whether that's the case or not, this is clearly a reference to Elijah in second Kings chapter one. This is where uh, the, the prophecy of King Ahaziah's death has been foretold by Elijah and, um, uh, John lifts up his voice to Jesus as he is rejected and says, well, Jesus, just say the word and we'll make this happen again. And Jesus says, no, it isn't the purpose or time for him to bring judgment into the world. That day is going to come, but today is the day of salvation. And so you can see where this leaves us. The disciples are judged By Christ to be faithless. They are unable to cast out a demon. They can't seem to wrap their heads around the idea of Christ's sufferings and death. They argue over who is going to be first in the kingdom of God. They don't like too much the idea of someone serving the Lord without their express permission. What a window this is into the weakness and sinfulness and pride facing even the Lord's people. But where the disciples fail, Christ is faithful. Where they are powerless, Jesus takes this desperate child and he restores him and he returns him. To the Father, where they are full of rivalry and self-seeking, Jesus denies himself. They clamor for the top. He takes the form of a servant. They grasp at greatness. Jesus walks in humility. They have aspirations for glory. He has set his face like a flint for Jerusalem, where the cross is. I want to suggest to you that when Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, that he is saying that as much uh, for the sake of their own understanding of his person and work as he is for their understanding of what it means to follow him to be a follower of this suffering Savior. You can see that in what follows. Just look at that last section with me. Three short scenes, uh, verse 57, it says that as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Church, I want you to notice here that you have a man who's resolved to follow Christ. I will follow you. Wherever you go, he has abandoned himself to the cause of the Lord Jesus. And this is especially striking because Matthew tells us that he's a scribe. Uh, one of those men who, as a, as a class, uh, typically are found with the Pharisees rejecting Christ. They're opposed to the Lord. Nevertheless, this man says, I will follow you wherever you go. But does he know what he's saying? Does he have any clue what he speaks of? Had he spent time counting the cost, weighing the sacrifice that that would mean? Following Jesus is no easy thing, church. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, the poverty of our Lord in his condescension and his humiliation. Jesus' plight on the earth was worse than a beast. It was worse than an animal. Do you really understand what you're saying when you proclaim your readiness to follow me? Do you have any idea what that really entails? how powerfully does that speak to us today how powerfully does that to, does that speak to the kind of uh, decisionism that is so prevalent in the church today that says well you can ask jesus into your heart and never have anything more to do with him you don't have to live uh, like him you don't have to look like him you can bear no resemblance to him and yet belong to him that's folly friends that's a false gospel. Thomas Manton said this. He said, Let us not flatter ourselves with an easy passage to heaven. Many think they may be good Christians, yet live a life of pomp and ease and pleasure, free from all trouble and molestation. This is all one, as if a soldier go, going to the wars should promise himself a continual peace or truce with the enemy, or as a mariner undertaking a long voyage should only think of fair weather in a calm sea without waves and storms. So irrational is it for a Christian to look for nothing but rest and peace here upon earth. Our Christ had nowhere to lay his head. He was not at home in this world, he wasn't welcomed by it, and neither will his disciples. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. I wonder whether Christ comes across as cold and unfeeling to you, in that uh, statement there. What was the problem here? At first glance, this seems like a pretty reasonable request to go and bury your father. In all likelihood, probably what you have here, though, is a situation where the man's father hasn't actually died yet. Rather, uh, his death is impending, death is drawing near, and he wants to go back home and wait for that time to, to pass. We can make that argument on the basis of the fact that we know, uh, ordinarily speaking, burials had to, had to occur within the first 24 hours of death. So if the father had already died at this point, he would have been attending to the arrangements already. There is, an addition to that, the, the stipulation of the law that if you were attending to uh, the burial of a, uh, a body, if you were helping to repair someone for a funeral, you could not be out in public. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 19 and verse 11. And so he wouldn't have been traveling away from home in the first place. So that seems to suggest you have a situation where a man delays from heeding the call because of temporal concerns. This much is clear. You have a situation where uh, you have an individual that has pretensions of following Christ, but he puts them off that he may first give himself to other things. And that word first is really all that we need to know in verse 59, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That word is all you need to know in terms of where his loyalties and his allegiances really lay. And I would ask you today, dear ones, what is your first? What is your first? What takes first place in your life? Jesus says, leave the dead to bury Their own dead. It's an interesting turn of phrase, of course, because the dead don't bury the dead. So what in the world is Jesus saying here? How are we to take this? It seems that Jesus is saying something like this. You say life is to be found in the promised Messiah, in the pursuit of Christ. You say your ambition is to follow me. Leave then the spiritually dead to bury their own dead. Come, find newness of life in me. Come, find true life in the pursuit of me." He's bringing to the fore the allegiance required of disciples of Christ, the reordering of one's priorities under the lordship of his reign, even a shocking break with expected social conventions. Is there anything wrong with caring for your family, attending funerals, that kind of thing? Of course not. Of course not. But friends, when the trappings of the world hold us back from first things, there you found your idol. There you have found your first thing. There you have discovered the God you serve. Jesus' admonition here is that devotion to the kingdom of God supersedes earthly ties. It surpasses all other duties, all other allegiances, all other loves, yes, even that of our own family. It is true that we have duties to our parents, but before that comes love of God, love of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The order there is not without significance. The love of God comes first. Jesus says it in express terms in Matthew 10 and verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is, is not worthy of me. You remember Christ's own example from Luke chapter 2. Jesus goes missing, and for three days, his parents are searching for him. And eventually, they come upon him in the temple. What does Jesus say? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? My Father's house. So it is to be with us, brothers and sisters. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let us order our lives with that good end in view. Cut ties with whatever you must do and and, and do so speedily. You can see Uh, The urgency that is baked into Jesus' exhortation here in this passage, the demand is to give a quick and a speedy answer to the call. The man's father could pass at any moment. Jesus says, leave the dead. Nothing is so urgent as following Christ. Nothing. Nothing at all. And finally, verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's hard not to think of Lot's wife here. You remember how Lot's wife looked behind her at uh, Sodom's destruction and in The blink of an eye, she became a pillar of salt. That the glance of her eye revealed the orientation of her heart. Jesus is speaking to the problem of divided affections here, of a divided heart. We're told in the New Testament, in fact, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. If you're going to plow a straight line, you've got to keep your eye looking forward. In spiritual terms, if you're going to persevere, if you're going to make it to the end, you have to keep your eye on Christ. You have to keep your eye on the Savior. Now, the scriptures don't tell us what effect Christ's words had on Any of these three men, whether the one followed Christ or not, whether the next left his father behind and went with Jesus, whether the other bid farewell to his family and in doing so bid farewell to Christ. But what of us? What effect has the word of God had upon our own hearts this day? Have Christ's words sunk Into our ears. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, in the application of this word today. God, we pray that you would allow these words to truly sink deeply into our spiritual ears. Father, you are so gracious and kind. Lord, we are so very grateful for the power and hope of the gospel. That good news that in Christ, needy men like ourselves can be forgiven of our sin, that we can be restored to right relationship with you. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son, for the gift of faith that justifies us in your sight Lord, we come to you this day very much in need, very much like uh, the father of that uh, boy, with both faith and unbelief present in our hearts. God, we come on one hand lifting up our eyes to the hills where our help comes from. And we also come appealing for your help, mindful of our. Faithlessness, cognizant, Lord, of how quick we are to stray, to see our faith flag, to doubt, and to question your ways. Lord, we do confess that we are like the disciples in many ways, that we are double minded, that our affections are often torn between the things of God and the things of the world between uh, self-reliance and looking and faith to you. And so we come to you, Lord. God, we come asking for your grace to believe, grace to, to put away sin, grace to step away from the trappings of the world, grace to set our hope fully on the the grace that will be brought at the revelation of your Son. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. Work in our lives for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.